This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by bowlandbranch.com, offering luxury bedding at affordable prices. Order right now and they'll give you 20% off plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com and use the promo code CULTURE. And by Roku and HBO Now. Roku offers the biggest selection of streaming channels like HBO Now. Learn more and try HBO Now free for one month by going to roku.com gab. And by Tracker. Make losing things a thing of the past. Get 40% off your first Tracker device by going to thetracker.com and using the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Threat or Menace Edition. It's Wednesday, March 16th, 2016. On today's show, 10 Cloverfield Lane is the latest wide release bearing the imprimatur. How do you say that, Julia Turner? Imprimatur? (laughs) Imprimatur. Um, (laughs) No one knows how Latin was pronounced, so we can just go with our own. Didn't I figure it out from the misspelled graffiti? That's like like a, a Latin urban legend peddled by... Mr. Davies hotly in seventh grade <laughs> in Milton, Massachusetts, was that we didn't know how Latin was pronounced. And then they discovered some misspelled graffiti, which allowed the phonetics of Latin to be revealed. And so we did know. I love that we're off on a hopeless tangent and I haven't even <laughs> announced what topic Lindsay, was. will you please fact check the phonetics of Latin and we'll circle back to it in endorsements. <laughs> Mr. Davies, were you right? <laughs> My feeling is just saying the word makes you feel, you know, kind of regal. So you ought to say it regally, imprimatur. Anyway. But I feel like imprimatur has more of like a <laughs> British regality to it. Julia, don't break my momentum. Sorry. During the introduction. Okay, sorry. Anyway, 10 Cloverfield Lane bears the imprimatur of J.J. Abrams, but it is also possibly a new kind of blockbuster. We'll discuss that and whether we thought the movie was any good. And then Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War is the new book by Slate's own Fred Kaplan. The Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist takes us into the strange new world of, yes, cyber warfare, and details the terrifying vulnerabilities of the American defense system, even to garden-variety hackers. And finally, the names that we are given at birth, are they a blessing, a curse, or an incidental arrangement of phonemes? We discuss the Jody Grind, the secret history of my name, with its author, Jody Rosen. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hey, Steve. And of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Steven. Uh, Julia, almost inevitably, we have some business before we start. Yes, we do, Steve. We have two pieces of business. The first is that in our Slate Plus segment this week, we will talk about the conclusion of Cloverfield and what we thought of the ending, whether the movie stuck the landing. The movie is a mystery puzzle, and to really critique it, you have to review how the puzzle resolves. So we'll do that. And also, I wanted to remind our listeners that we have a live show coming up on April 6th in New York City at the SVA Theater at 730. You can buy tickets to that at slate.com slash live. All right, Steve, let's commence. 
Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. Ten Cloverfield Lane stars Mary Elizabeth Winstead as a woman held captive by John Goodman, a survivalist who insists that he and his bunker are saving her from an alien invasion. The movie is from the laboratory of J.J. Abrams, who is an executive producer. It's directed by Dan Trachtenberg. We're going to mix it up a little bit. We're not going to listen to a clip because, Dana, this movie's really built around... I mean, this is a movie you really don't want to spoil. It's What's interesting about it is that it's a chamber piece, really, and at its heart is a mystery about whether this man has, in fact, John Goodman has, in fact, saved her. He's a survivalist who's spent his life waiting for what may be this moment to come around where, you know, there's a you know, nuclear apocalypse or an alien invasion or something. He's built this elaborate bunker. We don't know whether he's really saving her or is a complete psychopath who's taken her prison for his own devices. Anyway, what did you uh, what did you make of the movie? Well, first of all, I wanted to ask, did either of you two see Cloverfield, the 2008 J.J. Abrams produced No, because movie. as you guys know, I only see scary movies when you make me see them for the podcast. So I don't know if we missed that, if our, if our show started just after it or what. But No, we had a show I then. I think we it. just didn't talk about it. You did see it, Steve. Yeah, I did. I liked it, actually. All right. So Steve and I have both seen Cloverfield. Steve, having seen Cloverfield, did you feel the need for some sort of obliquely connected sequel to Cloverfield to come out eight years later? Was that a burning desire you had? I, not at all, though. I, I did like Cloverfield. I mean, the, the hook for the first Cloverfield, the original Cloverfield movie, was that it was uh, it was a story told from found footage pieced together from cell phones of the presumably survivors or not survivors, you don't know as you're watching it, of this giant alien invasion. I thought that was quite, quite clever. I, I saw it under perfect circumstances at one in the morning on cable TV, you know, deep into a six pack of beer. It was like kind of a perfect movie to see under those circumstances. I think if I'd seen it in the movie theater, I would be less enthusiastic. And we should say about this movie that Abrams himself has described it as a B picture. He he wants these Cloverfield movies to have a kind of B picture vibe to them. And they certainly do that. This is not a direct sequel. It's kind of a cousin. There's sort of an anthology approach. It, it's meant to be a similar kind of movie rather than a direct sequel. Abrams himself has kind of pegged our expectations low by calling these B pictures. Yeah, that seems like it's a genre he's very interested in. And so is Drew Goddard, who co-wrote this and I think co-wrote the first one as well and who's often worked with J.J. Abrams. I think they like this idea of taking a genre picture, sort of an old style genre picture and doing something new with it. I have to say that I walked into this second Cloverfield movie thinking the last thing I need is a sequel to that disappointing found footage J.J. Abrams thing from eight years ago. Then being pretty um, sort of snapped into place by the suspense structure of this movie. It's like a little suspense machine, right? It's short. It's 103 minutes long. It's full of this driving Bernard Herman-esque kind of psycho-style music. It actually starts just like Psycho with the Mary Elizabeth Winstead character fleeing for unknown reasons the place where she lives and driving nervously down the highway at night as this thrumming music surrounds her. And, uh, and it kind of traps you into that Hitchcock trap and you enjoy it as it's unrolling. But then, honestly, hours after seeing it on the way home, I was right back to where I was at the beginning. Like, we did not need that sequel. And I really don't like, it's just a me thing, but I do not like that X-Files, J.J. Abrams style, like planting paranoid seeds that may or may not blossom eight years later into sequels. It feels to me like, yeah, maybe it is sort of overturning the question of what a sequel is or what a reboot is, but not necessarily in a direction that's that interesting. It just seems like a more complex form of cynical branding to me, honestly. Wait, I'm sorry. Can, Can someone lay out for me the argument? Somehow I missed this piece in my prep for the story. What is the argument for how this movie reinvents the sequel? Oh, I'm I'm plagiarizing shamelessly from a vulture piece that made the claim 
that you take very obvious and well-trod genre elements and you put something quirky and mysterious and actually quite small canvas at the center of it, which I do think that this movie sort of does. I mean, it's really a psychological thriller. It's almost like the movie, the great Australian thriller, Dead Calm, with, uh, which ta with Nicole Kidman takes place on a tiny little boat. You're in a minuscule claustrophobic atmosphere at the heart of which is a mystery. And actually, I think structurally just a fascinating mystery, which is what is the backstory of this man who has built this bunker? And is he sort of a paranoid schizophrenic who's imagined an alien, you know, invasion because deep in his psyche, he longs for one in order to justify all the loving effort he's put into making this ersatz home, you know, buried in his cellar, you know, or has something really cataclysmic happened above ground and he's actually saved this woman. I thought that that was a terrific setup, but Julia, uh, what 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 did you actually make of of watching the movie? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Did you like it? Uh, I liked it. I mean, I guess if the theory is that uh, we'll take the you know big budget bravado of J.J. Abrams and the notion that this is a sequel because it has one of the same words in the title as a previous <laughs> film that did okay, uh, and we're going to use it to make uh, almost like a theater piece. I mean, really, you could perform this as a play. Essentially, you know, it's it's like people in a small room for most of the time, right? And then some scary sounds. You would lose a few visuals overall. And to the degree that Hollywood does not necessarily allow people to create psychological chamber pieces, I guess I'm excited that they did in this case. I did find the uh, actors at the core of the film to be appealing. I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead is kind of great. And I was looking her up on IMDb afterwards and noticing that she's sort of had this like around the edges career a bit where she's like almost hit the big time a few times. But I thought she did a great job of expressing her wariness and reserve and constant calculation as she tried to figure out what the hell was actually going on uh, in this bunker. And uh, John Goodman, who plays her captor, is... You know, I mean, it's like a gigantic jelly Danish of a role. It's so delicious, and he just chomps the crap out of it. But uh, mm. but it's, you know, a menacing delight to be in his company. I, I did not find this movie offensive or cynical. I guess if we're living in an era when, you know, all movies to get any significant budget attached must be part of some franchise, I find a movie like this a much more pleasurable cinematic conceit than... I'm sure, the upcoming Batman versus Superman. I guess I should go into it without any preconceptions, but, but I you, can't say my hopes are high. Honestly, if this movie had been called The Girl in the Bunker and been the exact same movie and not made that that link to, to Cloverfield, which, by the way, was part of this whole dramatic unrolling marketing campaign where the actors themselves were not told the title of the movie and the fact that it connected to this earlier movie until weeks before the release, it was all part of this sort of like attempting to be dramatic rollout. If not for that, I would find this... a somewhat dispensable but enjoyable little suspense machine of a movie. But I am sort of irritated at the idea that, you know, that there's there's like another lost being perpetrated on us in some sort of slow unspooling of ever more senseless and complicated paranoid theories of Cloverfield. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, the movie is 10 Cloverfield Lane. It's directed by Dan Trachtenberg. Uh, it stars John Goodman and Mary Elizabeth Winstead. We are kind of on the fence on this one, so it would help to hear from you at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? 
The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored this week by Bowl and Branch. If you want to create your best work, you need to get solid rest. Even if you're only sleeping four hours a night, make them as comfortable as possible with Bowl and Branch sheets. I need to depart from the ad copy here to tell people that is not okay. That that's not okay. You should not sleep only four hours a night. You should sleep enough. Getting enough sleep is important. So spend even more hours on your comfortable Bowl and Branch sheets. All right. Bowl and Branch has reimagined sheets by cutting out the middlemen, markups, and the chain store mentality to deliver luxury sheets for a fraction of the price you'd pay elsewhere. You can only get these sheets in one place. That's bowlandbranch.com, where you know you're paying for quality and not department store overhead. You're getting $1,000 sheets for just a couple hundred bucks. Go online to bowl, that's B-O-L-L, and branch.com. And the thing I like best here is that they let you try the sheets risk-free for 30 nights. If you don't absolutely love them, you can send them back. You literally have nothing to lose. I really think that's the best thing about Bowl & Branch sheets because everybody has their own particular tastes and styles when it comes to their bedding. And I, Princess and the P-like, believe that you should get your bed just right. So Bowl & Branch is game to collaborate with you and let you try out their wares and see if they are the sheets for you. Ball and Branch also has a discount for our listeners. You can get 20% off your entire order of sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more, plus free shipping. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for 20% off your entire order using the promo code CULTURE. All right, Steve, what's next? Fred Kaplan is the national security columnist for Slate. His books include The Wizards of Armageddon, Daydream Believers, and The Insurgents. His new book is Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. Fred Kaplan, welcome back to the show. It's been too long. Ah, good to be here. Fred, the anxiety that uh, the neural network behind our military arsenal um, might be vulnerable to hacking, that fear goes back as far as the late 60s, if I understand it. And yet 30 years later, in 1997, after a lapse of 30 full years, a basic hacking exercise compromises the entire Defense Department establishment uh, in your brilliant telling. Within one day, they'd broken into the facility that would be the president's wartime command center. What I love about these uh, apocalyptic vignettes is that, yeah, okay, in some instances, it took hacker wizardry to break in. In others, it was extremely, really, bricks and mortars. You you know, dumpster diving, guessing at passwords such as one, two, three, four, five, or even just calling up the guy on the weekend shift and asking him what the password was. Fred, you have scared the living daylights out of me and I'm sure the rest of the panel. Should we be as uh, terrified as you've made us? Well, um, you know, when I was working on this book, friends would ask me, well, what do you do? What should I do? And I would say, you know, if, if all you're worried about is, you know, criminals, punks, mischief makers, Hacking into your account, stealing your credit cards, your you know your Netflix list or something. There are things you can do. Then they're pretty simple and fairly effective. It's like you know putting a better lock on your front door, that kind of thing. If, however, there's somebody who really wants something that you have, or that the government has, and he's really good at doing this, or it's a nation state with all the resources that accrue to a nation state, there's really not a whole lot that you can do. There's not, it used to be that um, it was thought that, well, I'll just uh, unplug this vital computer from the internet. But people have learned how to hop over what was called the air gap using, you know, having somebody insert uh, a thumb drive with malware on it or, or, or other sorts of things. So, you know, if if they want it really, really, really badly and they have the resources, uh, again, there's not a whole lot you can do. You mentioned the military. 
every time they've played a war game where the red team has tried to hack into the command control network of the blue team, the hackers always get in. They always get in. Hmm. Talk a little bit about um, how the military strategy and response to cyber warfare and and pernicious hacking has changed. I mean, one of the things yeah. that I love about the incident Steve mentioned, which we highlighted in the excerpt of your book that we ran on Slate, is that it's one of a succession of these moments where the military apparatus suddenly freaks out, decides, gosh, this cyber threat, we really got to get our heads around it. You know, what are we going to do? They have some kind of test or exercise. They realize they're hopelessly vulnerable. Someone writes a, a trenchant plaintive memo about how we've really got to get our shit together. And then it all kind of just recedes for a few years until somebody does it again. So there's this kind of persistent pattern over the past decades of people awakening to the threat. But as you say, the hackers always get in. So how has that changed what the military tries to do or thinks that their goal should be in preparing for these attacks that are so far inevitably successful? Right. It used to be that they figured, especially at the NSA, one day we will come up with an algorithm that can create a perfect black box that no one can penetrate. They, they now see that that's pie in the sky. So what, what they're focusing mostly on now is detection and resilience. In other words, make sure if somebody does get in that you see them getting in and that you can push them out and repair the damage very quickly. I think there was an article in Slate uh, that appeared after I finished writing my book, so it's not in there, but that, you know, for example, now the Navy is training its people on ships to use a sextant to navigate by the stars so that in case the data link to the GPS satellite is hacked, uh, they can still know where they are out in the middle of the ocean. Right, I mean, they're going analog. They're going, they're going 16th analog. century. That's it, that's, that's it. That's so wonderful, the reskilling of the workforce in order to evade the octopus, the cyber octopus. Yeah, there's there's a great story. In the, in the 90s, there was a commission looking into all these vulnerabilities. And often when I interviewed people, I asked them what their aha moment was. And for the chief of staff on this commission, he was waiting for a plane at National Airport It was going to leave at 8 o'clock in the morning because there was a hearing in Boston to talk about the vulnerability of infrastructure at 10.30. And he missed the plane because the computer governing the device that measures weights and balances crashed. And nobody knew how to use a slide rule anymore. Hmm. So he says, okay, I can't make this meeting to talk about the fragility of our infrastructure because of the fragility of our infrastructure. (laughs) I mean, one of the things that I think makes your book so interesting is to read it in the context of a post-Sony, post-Apple hack world where you hear stories every day about the rise of driverless cars. Like, our lives, not just within the military proper, um, but broadly in corporations and in private life, are becoming more and more and more dependent on uh, networked capabilities In the wake of Sony, I'm curious to hear you talk about the odd dynamics of the fact that the things that might get hacked by a foreign state may be civilian or corporate targets rather than, you know, actual military installations. Right. The the Sony hack is is kind of an unanticipated thing. Who would have imagined that hackers would be interested in that? But what it was, it was, you know, North Korea 
uh, being pissed off that Sony made a picture that insulted their dear leader. Uh, A few months earlier, in a similar hack that didn't get quite as much press attention, uh, the Iranians hacked uh, Sheldon Adelson's Vegas Sands Casino and Hotel Complex because he'd made a remark that, that maybe we should just drop a a nuclear bomb on the Iranian desert as a demonstration of how serious we were. Uh, so, yeah, this this is something that it's not the Manhattan Project. You know, you don't need a campus of physicists and billions of dollars to, to build an atomic bomb. Uh, all it takes is a room full of computers and some smart people who know how to use them, and they can do uh, not nuclear damage, but still devastating targeted damage from down the street or across the world, and it turns out that it's not necessarily just, you know, to steal industrial secrets or steal bank accounts or or engage in military espionage, but also for uh, straightforward political purposes. Fred, I'm very curious what you think about the Apple phone scandal, the Apple phone of the San Bernardino shooter, and, and whether the government should have the right to uh, to force Apple to crack into it. Well, you know, the, 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 the thing that needs to be looked at in context and, and this battle in context is that there has been complicity between telecoms and intelligence and law enforcement agencies dating back almost a century, back to the 1920s when uh, a World War I-era intelligence agency persuaded Western Union to give them access to every telegraph that came in and out of the country. When telephones came in, the AT&T cooperated or set up phone taps or allowed government to set up phone taps. When internet began, it got even more intimate. I mean, if if you're a software company and you want to sell something to the Department of Defense, it has to be vetted for security. Uh, who Who vets security? An outfit in the NSA called the Information Assurance Directorate. When Microsoft submitted its first Windows program, Windows operating system, for this vetting, the NSA found 1,500 points of vulnerability. And they helped them patch these points. Not all of them. They left some of them open so that if foreign governments bought this system, they could hack into them. As recently as 2009, uh, the Chinese hacked into Google's Chrome program, got into the source code. The NSA helped them repair it. So from the FBI's point of view, what they're trying to do in this case is to perpetuate this arrangement through the next era of much tighter encryption. And Apple is kind of breaking apart from the rest of Silicon Valley by saying, we don't want to do this anymore. Uh, we think uh, that this is, this is dipping too deeply into people's privacy. And, you know, I, I've, been, I've talked with a number of people about this and written a couple of columns for Slate. This case is not really about this particular phone. If it were, it's pretty slam dunk. I mean, this phone, it belongs to the county. It was owned by the county. They've given consent to, to do whatever with this phone that the government wants. The guy who had the phone, he's dead. He has no privacy rights. The political optics are terrible. You know, this isn't some two-bit drug pusher. It's a it's a mass murderer who was in who at least fashioned himself as a as an ISIS agent. Uh, I think Apple doesn't have a, a very strong case, but the FBI has been looking for a test case to expand its powers over encryption in this new age, and they've glommed on to this one. 
And I think Apple might be making a mistake because if they win the court battle, a number of people in Congress, including Dianne Feinstein, are prepared to introduce legislation requiring companies to strip their encryption if presented with a lawful warrant, which goes much further in terms of uh, you know violations of privacy and and trade secrets and so forth than what the FBI is asking Apple to do in this instance. But both sides have elevated this battle into a high battle of principles to perpetuate an arrangement or to disrupt an arrangement that's been going on for a long, long time. Well, Fred, this is the Culture Gap Fest, so I'm going to ask you about um, the excerpt that ran in the New York Times, which was a classic anecdote from the Reagan era in which Ronald Reagan... Uh, I believe at Camp David gets a special presidential screening of the new movie War Games on the night that it's released, the old Matthew Broderick uh, movie. And, um, you know, as per Reagan's want, he's he's quite taken by the film. And he had a long history going back to his Hollywood days of structuring reality around what he uh, either played or witnessed in movies. And um, it suddenly occurred to him to bring up at a high-level cabinet meeting that this danger, you know, seemed very real to him. And thus, a, you know, the pop culture instigated a new trend in um, U.S. security. Tell us a little bit about that incident. Right. Well, you know, Lou Cannon, in his book about Reagan, revealed long ago that he saw war games and then brought it up at a meeting in the White House. And Cannon's response was, aha, this is another instance of the old man confusing Hollywood with reality. But this actually had an impact. He, he, he asks if anybody has seen this movie. Nobody has. He launches into a detailed plot description of it. Uh, you know, it's about Matthew Broderick plays this tech whiz teenager who unwittingly hacks into the main computer of the North American Air Defense Command and thinking that he's playing a new online game called Global Thermonuclear War almost sets off World War III. So Reagan then turns to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and says, General, could could something like this really happen? And the general says, uh, I'll look into that, Mr. President, as generals are wont to do. And he comes back a week later and says, Mr. President, the problem is much worse than you think. And this actually leads to the first presidentially signed directive on telecommunications and computer security. Now, it then takes a twist. This directive is written by the NSA, and it gives the NSA the power to set standards for computers, all computers in the United States. Well, civil liberties people in Congress don't like this at all. Uh, they, they rewrite it so that basically the NSA gets control of dot .mil, you know, classified. The Commerce Department is supposed to secure everything else. Well, of course, the Commerce Department doesn't know anything about this. At the time, the NSA isn't interested in patching security holes. They're interested in, in exploiting them. So this vulnerability continues for another 15 years until some real-life hacks begin. But the point is that at that moment in 1983, the debate and the, the controversy that we're seeing even to this day has its er moment. Uh, the, 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 the argument over, you know, the, the, the dilemma between security and civil liberties, uh, the struggle between the NSA and other branches of government, uh, this begins with, uh, with this bizarre moment of Ronald Reagan 
seeing war games at Camp David and then asking a question in the White House that makes everybody in the room roll his eyes like, oh, where's the old man going with this one? So it is, it is a bizarre story, but uh, many history has many bizarre stories. I mean, one question I have for you about that more broadly is it's interesting in the books mentioned both of war games and sneakers that Hollywood is sort of anticipating a next trend in warfare in some ways before a lot of people in the Pentagon do. It feels to me, and this may be inaccurate or or sort of cloudy hindsight, like the social and cultural reflections on the nuclear age really happened in the wake of, of uh, detonization of those weapons. And, and as you said, it was so big, so robust, so visible, the world felt like it had to reckon with it. I feel like, you know, it feels to me like this is so tectonic, so fascinating. Um, you know, I, I guess I guess we do. There is this whole set of apocalyptic shows about, and in fact, Cloverfield, right? The, you know, is it an electromagnetic pulse that's setting off the end times? You know, there are various um, conjurings in culture now of what will happen when all the computers are compromised and the grid goes down. Right. But but it somehow feels to me like we haven't quite gotten there yet in terms of the the really fascinating cultural work that's reckoning with this age? Maybe not. Uh, again, partly it's because nobody knows a whole lot about it. The, the thing with war games that's fascinating and not just some kind of vague cultural vibe that's out there is that um, the two writers of war games, Lawrence Lasker and Walter Parks, who, by the way, also wrote Sneakers uh, several years later, uh, they lived in Santa Monica, and they were researching the script. And somebody, uh, a friend of theirs who was a hacker, told them about this technique that hackers have of, of programming phones to just dial every phone in an area code, letting it ring twice. And if a computer is on the other end, it squawks, the modem squawks, and it records the number, and they can go back to it later. But they were wondering, what well, could this kid really break into the computer at, at NORAD like this? Isn't it a closed system? So they, they were near the Rand, they lived near the Rand Corporation and they called the public affairs office and they said, Who's somebody we can talk to about this? And they said, Oh, you want to talk to Willis Ware. Willis Ware was a was the head of the computer department and an NSA advisor who back in nineteen sixty seven had written the first paper warning just on the eve of the rollout of the ARPANET, which was the precursor to the internet warning that creating a computer network with online access from multiple unsecured locations creates inherent vulnerabilities. So nobody listened to him, but that kind of was the bitten apple in the digital Garden of Eden. So these guys go see Willis Ware, and he says, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I designed the software for that computer, you know, the real-life computer. And he goes, you're right, it's a closed system. But, um, you know, there's always some officer who wants to do work from home on the weekend, so he leaves a port open. And, yeah, if you happen to know what that phone number was, you could dial in. And then he kind of leaned forward and said, here's the thing people don't realize. The only computer that's completely secure is a computer that no one can use. So it's kind of ironic that this guy who'd been warning about the vulnerability of computer networks for years, fruitlessly, was a crucial advisor to the movie that Ronald Reagan watched that got computer vulnerability on the agenda as high-level national policy. 
by hook or by crook. <laughs> All right. Well, Fred, um, I have to say you've done nothing to coax the living daylights back into me. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about Dark Territory, the Secret History of Cyber War. Uh, please come back soon. Sure. Thanks. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Dana Stevens. What do we have? Stephen, today, the Culture Gap Fest is also brought to you by Roku and HBO Now. Roku players offer the biggest selection of streaming channels you can find, including HBO Now, and also innovative features like voice search, unbiased search results, and private listening via the Roku remote on your mobile app. With HBO Now, you can get all of HBO, including every season, every episode of all of their original series, past and present, plus the biggest and latest movies before any other streaming service gets them. You don't need any cable package. You'd be happy to know, Steve. And it's available on any Roku player. I have to jump in here to say that we just got a Roku at home a couple weeks or months ago, and it's so great. I feel We were like... Um, we still are, I guess, TiVo holdout. So we've used TiVo as our DVR as opposed to the thing that comes with the cable package. But then getting TiVo, we have like an old one and getting it to play nicely with all of the different new on-demand services has become increasingly complicated. And Roku just feels like a revelation, the notion that you can really get to anything uh, from it and really simply in terms of the user interface is great. I feel like people sometimes ask us, like, how do you keep up with all the culture that you have to watch for the podcast that you do? And Roku, there are many nights when I'm prepping for the show where usually I would have been watching whatever it is we're going to talk about on my cramped little 13-inch computer screen because I just can't bother to figure out how to get the freaking picture onto my larger TV uh, that I can now watch in beautiful, full-size color in my living room while lounging comfortably on a couch rather than crabbed over an apple. So I am strongly pro-Roku. All right, so there's the Turner endorsement for Roku. You should know that HBO Now is the only standalone streaming service that gives you all of HBO with no TV package required. And you can try it free for one month if you visit roku.com slash gab to learn more about Roku players and to get your one-month free HBO Now trial. That's roku.com slash gab. All right, Steve, let's gab. All right, moving on. He was more or less born Joel Harold Rosen, but soon became Jody, a diminutive of Judith, daughter of Judea, and has been one ever since. Jody Grind, The Secret History of My Name, is the personal essay for Slate on growing up with a supposedly feminine name by Jody Rosen, critic at large for T Magazine. And Jody, you're not just a fop, I want to let you know. You are a f- that is a first friend of the program. You've been away too long, and it's uh, a great to have you back. Welcome back. It's great to be here. Jody, this is a beautiful piece of writing, I have to say. It was really lovely through and through. Um, I love that there are these two possible extremes uh, about one's, the name one is given at birth. It, you know, a rose by any other name is still a rose. Or as rabbinic tradition has it, as you say, a name has the power to shape a fate. Talk a little bit about the history behind you ending up being called Jody and how that may or may not have shaped your fate. Yeah, so um, as you say, I was my real name name um, was Joel Harold Rosen. That's the name my parents gave me. But they decided very soon after my birth that that was too adult a name um, for their infant. So uh, they started calling me Jody, and it stuck. It's kind of um, I saw the response of certain people who've read to. To this piece, who've read it as well, Jody's your nickname. Why, why so angsty about it? But the fact is, it was like it was my nickname from birth, and it's like it's on everything but my birth certificate. It's on my driver's license, on all my student transcripts. It's on the byline of everything I wrote. Like I never lived 
with any other name. So effectively, it's my name. And, uh, you know, I've, um, as I say in the piece, I've come to terms with it now in my wise middle middle age years. But for a while, it, it was quite a burden, especially because um, when I was a little kid, I was teased a lot about the name because it was regarded as a a girl's name, and it's a name more frequently given to girls. And uh, and in my particular case, there was this um, very popular doll advertised incessantly on television uh, here in New York City in the 70s when I was a kid, and the doll was called Jody the Country Girl Doll, and this infected the minds of all of the youth of New York City, as far as I can tell, and and <laughs> was, <laughs> was a source of... Um, great trauma for me. I appreciated uh, the trauma-induced vibrancy of your description of the Jody doll, her clothing, her jingle, everything. It's Wait, all can we, engraved. Can we pause to play the jingle, which is so amazing? Yeah, the jingle is key. Jody, oh Jody, she's a country girl doll. Sweet, pretty Jody, the country girl doll. Pretty face, pretty dress, and pantaloons too. And long, pretty hair reaching down to her shoe. Jody, oh Jody, she's the country girl doll. Jody, the country girl doll by Ideal. (laughs) (laughs) I could listen to that a thousand times. We grew up in the age of jingles, man. That was that was a golden age. Jody, I'm so sorry, man. Yeah, that was rough. But yeah, no, and honestly, that was like I was regaled with that song all the time on the playground, Um, and so Jody became sort of an albatross. Um, and that's mm-hmm. that's what I I write about in this piece. But actually, this was really you know I'm, I'm I have to confess I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the personal essay genre. This is my first, and I I guarantee you only foray and um, <laughs> into that. And what I what I liked about this piece was the the way that it, it allowed me to explore other questions about what's in a name, and also the weird the particular weird kind of cultural history of the name Jody, which turned out to have um have a stranger backstory than I than I knew as a child. Talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that and about the the kind of Jody chants in the military and and other similar environments which have connotations probably as far from Jody the country girl doll as you could imagine. Right. So this is something that I learned when I was I think in my late 20s or early 30s I really didn't know anything about it through my childhood into my adulthood. Um, but one time I was in a, uh, I was riding a taxi in, in Hoboken, New Jersey, of all places, and the cab driver asked me my name, and I told him my name was Jody. And he said, oh, Jody, you're a pimp. And I said, well, what do you mean uh, I'm a pimp? And he said, well, if your name's Jody, you're a pimp. Uh, that's just what a Jody is. And he explained to me that in, um, that in U.S. military culture, um, the, kind of the marching chants, the so-called what they call cadences, the chants or psalms um, sung by soldiers um, while they march, which kind of help them establish a like a martial rhythm and keep them in formation. These psalms are called jodies or jody cadences or jody chants. And the reason they're called that is because many of them feature a character, Jody, who is... Uh, jody is kind of this, um, this figure of... Um, the animus for the soldiers. He's the guy who's back on the home front, um, swooping in on your girl while you're, you know, stuck in basic training or you're overseas fighting the war. Jody this and Jody that. Jody this and Jody that. Jody is a real cool cat. Jody is a real cool cat. Ain't no use in calling home. Ain't no use in calling home. Jody's on your telephone. 
Tony's on your telephone. Ain't no use in going home. Ain't no use in going home. Jody's got your girl and gone. Jody's got your girl and gone. I mean, the essay is so beautiful, Jody, and uh, if, if it's the only personal essay you ever write, I'm very glad that you wrote it. And one of the things I loved most about it was sort of seeing your particular brain and your particular knack for musical history, right? You're Both of these sides of the coin, you're telling through the story of interesting little bits of musical rhythmic ephemera of the last century and how they reflect upon the name and help tell its story and help give it its valence, uh, all of which sits on your shoulders in some invisible way that you, you can't totally ever reckon with because you you live in the aquarium of your own name, right? Um, so it's beautiful to see you use the tools of who you are to reckon with how you've been named and how that has or hasn't shaped who you've become. It's sort of like a, a lovely little circle. And it just made me think about all of us in our names and having recently named some young people. Like it's, it is this, this crazy potent talismanic force. Honestly, as podcasters go, we have the most boring names of any Slate podcast, at least. Julia Turner, Dana Stevens, Stephen Metcalf. First of all, we only have five names between the three of us because Dana's last name is Steve's first name, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And honestly, the most interesting and unusual name is probably Metcalf. I mean, Dana's an unusual name, but it's like just a it's a normal name that people have it's also sort of can be androgynous right yeah well I was going to say I I identify with a lot of things that Jody says about his name and actually I loved particularly that you wrote this Jody because we had a conversation about all of this once like this was once unloaded on me in conversation I think and you were saying I was saying you should write about that you said maybe I'll write about it someday anyway I'm glad to have been some conversational part of the history of your only biographical (laughs) essay ever Um, but but I think my name, Dana, and yours, Jody, have some similarities. We're both time-stamped, as you talk about. You know, if you look at one of those graphs that, that charts the rise and fall of the name, I think we're both very 60s, 70s, right, peaking right around then. They're both androgynous, could go for male or female. They both, I don't know, have a sort of, like, surfer, <laughs> I don't know, just a kind of a, it's a it's a casual, as you, as your parents sort of sensed in, in renaming you from, from Joel, it's, it's a, I don't know, unserious name in some ways, right? I don't think I've ever talked about my relationship to mine name on this show or to you, but I've always had a profound sense of disconnection from my name. Every time I sign it, I feel like that's me, really. And <laughs> I neither love it nor hate it, but it doesn't feel like me. And uh, and I really love something that you say at the end of this essay about, you know, the accidental factor in naming and the fact that, in fact, maybe the imperfect name is kind of the perfect name, that what you're meant to do with your name is live with its very limitations within mm-hmm. its historical time frame. I mean, to me, I, I always felt that me, my brother, and my sister all had names that hopelessly dated us as, you know, products of this kind of mid-60s culture. But so what? We all live in history, right? We all occur within some historical context. And it made me feel a little bit better about taking on this name that to me has always felt like this little plastic chip from a prepackaged board game. It's interesting, though. I'm I'm thinking about it. I'm sorry for maligning your first name as normal and boring, Dana. I see now that the cultural specificity <laughs> that I have had the ability to overlook um, because of not having been settled with it. But mine, I mean, I I like my name. I think it's, it suits me. It's sort of like a Julia Turner. It's like a kind of British Isles milkmaid kind of name. And much of my heritage fits with that. Or it's uh, actually a Turner. 
You were a turner? Yeah, I guess. With a works a lathe or yeah, something, some exactly. kind of yeah. woodworker. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so, whatever. I was probably milking the cows out <laughs> behind the lathe shop. And Julia goes back to ancient Rome. I mean, that's a solid name. I think part of what always bugged me about my name is that it felt like it didn't have enough history. You know, it didn't. It felt like it didn't have any ethnic or cultural specificity, and it had just been sort of slapped on a suburban white chick who came off the conveyor belt. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. And like, and my and my given name, my f- original given name, Joel. Like at various times in my upbringing, my mom said to me when I would you know, bitch and moan about having the name Jody. She'd say, well, you can always, your name is Joel. You could always go back to that name. But Joel, to me, sounded even worse. It was like the kid in Hebrew school who had an egg salad sandwich, like, stuck in his braces, you know? <laughs> and I, th- I think that's, that, that's part of the thing, too. Also, like, names are are ruined for us by association, right? So if you know, I know this when I was getting around to naming my own children, you know, there might be a name that you like, but if you knew somebody in your past who had that name who you didn't like that person or... You liked them too much you liked for them a brief too much period or of time. Exactly. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. But actually, I have a question. And Steve, you're adopted. Hmm. And and I, so I wonder, was, was Steve your name at birth from your birth parents or was this something that your adoptive parents gave you? Jody, your feminine sense is unerring. Um, <laughs> I went through life knowing that on my birth certificate, were, uh, were the words Jonathan King were written, and it was the only no clue kidding. for m- many, many decades as to what my origins were. So there was this other person I might have been, this phantom uh, human being uh, whose life I didn't get, whose last name presumably was King, did turn out to be King. And so uh, that mild discordancy, existential discordancy that you write so beautifully about in, uh, in your piece between any any person and their name um, for me, was you know oscillated on a special frequency, and then uh, in my late thirties, I believe I discovered what the story behind that name was, and that scrap of paper was, and, and uh, a lot of things fell into place. So yeah, this 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 piece has a special poignancy for me. Wow. So as you grew up as a Steve, I mean, did discovering that cast light upon Steve or Stephen as you na- as your name? Have you always been a little bit of both? I feel like I think of you as a little bit of a both a Steve and a Stephen, which is always odd to me because I'm a Julia who's not, not and never has been and never will be a Julie. But like, did that name sit on you lightly otherwise? Yeah. Well, I mean, the couple things about my name. One is that you can either call me Steve or Steven and I let everyone decide. I, I, I never, I mean, I, and I don't really have any sort of preference. I have very old friends who have always called me Steve and very old friends who've always called me Steven. And then, um, and I, for some, I, for, in some dim way, I feel as though it defines the kind of a relationship I have with a person, though I've never tried to, you know, actually map that out. But, um, and then the second thing is, you know, th- there's the International Society of P.H. Stevens and the International Society of V. Stevens. And that th- that is the most discrepant Venn diagram possible. There's just no connection between a human being who could spell the word their own name, Stephen, with a V, and those of us who spell it nobly with a PH. Is this um, is this at the root of all of the debates between you and Dana, low these many years? <laughs> that fundamentally, she's a Stephen with a V, and you're a she Stephen just, with a she PH? Descends, she descends from V people, it's true. He has not yet um, explained how the PH has to be pronounced V. What's the deal? Give me the entire etymology. Yeah, why are you not Stefan? <laughs> well, that's the other thing. That's the other thing. I mean, that's, you know, that's my little, you know, feminine... Cross the bear, uh, turned me into a, a, a new feminine man, just as Jody turned Jody into Jody. I'm, I'm, everyone says Stefan when they're reading it off a clipboard, especially if they have a whistle on a um, shoelace around their neck. But um, it, the proudest thing, though, I think, is that is um, Stephen Dedalus 
James Joyce's mm. alter ego and portrait of the artist in Ulysses, the pencil-necked intellectual trapped inside the box of his own megalomania to end all such pencil-necked um, would-be geniuses is um, you know is obviously a Ph. Stephen. And, so. and now you've got Steph Curry, so you've got both. <laughs> in fact, maybe we'll have to just have to start calling you Steph. <laughs> I, I love it. Oh, Julia, I, I feel like you've somehow been exempted from this conversation, and I, I think not only I, but all of our listen, listeners want to know, how do robot people um, <laughs> choose humanoid, plausibly humanoid-sounding names? <laughs> I'm just going to ignore the, the tenor of that question and proceed blithely on, as robots do. Um, I like being a Julia. I feel it suits me. As I said, I'm not a Julie. The story of that name is that both my parents had beloved aunts named Julia, one who went by Julia and was a, a gracious Southern charmer, and one who went by Julie and died very shortly after I was born, but was my beloved maternal grandmother's just lifelong soulmate and sidekick. So it feels like the family legacy in the name is significant and um, powerful to me, and I like it. And the name is quite plain. However, I'm very conscious that I don't have a prickly name that makes you live with its implications on the playground, because my mother did. My mother's name is Otiel, which is a German a derivative of Attila, essentially, like the Hun. And you know, it's kind of related to like Odile and Swan Lake, like that family of names is a family of names that exists, but is not super common. She was Otile. Her mother was Otilia, went by Tilly sometimes. Her mother was Otilia. So this three generations of just incredibly strong Germanic and then Germanic Irish women had this incredible, vivid, amazing, rare like beautiful name, which my mother, you know, grew up being called like oatmeal, o you know, oatmeal, oatmeal, stick your head in oatmeal, whatever. The, the the power of the playground taunt lives with you. And so I think she was trying to spare me that. But I sort of feel like, why am I not the fourth O'Teal? Like, I feel like there's a hidden, the hidden steely rareness of O'Teal feels like this other alternate me that would have, I'm sure, I'm sure I would be writing a personal essay about the complications of of, <laughs> of it if it had actually been my name. Wow. An answer to make Philip K. Dick proud. The robot people were beautifully represented by his very <laughs> human-like. <laughs> AI technology, Steve. It's <laughs> making big leaps, yeah. getting better every day. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, going out on, on a totally glib note, um, Jody, your essays really is genuinely lovely, and it is such a joy to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Steve. And the essay is called The Jody Grind, The Secret History of My Name. It's uh, it's really worth seeking out. It's on Slate. Um, and also, by the way, this is one of those topics that opens up beautifully to our listenership. Uh, Y'all have names, and you've all had to live with them discordantly or otherwise. So come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, and uh, talk to us about what you are called. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do you got? This week's Slate Culture Gabfest is also sponsored by Tracker. Technology has made everything smart, but losing your stuff still makes smart people feel really stupid. Tracker makes losing things a thing of the past. It's a coin-sized device that locates misplaced keys, wallets, bags, computers, anything in seconds. Pair Tracker to your smartphone, attach it to anything, and find its precise location with a tap of a button. 
I do say this is one of those things of the internet age that's just such a good idea for a product. You can't. You, it feels like, hooray, we live in the now. I am really good at finding my husband's shit. Like when he's lost something and he asks me where it is, I can usually locate it within eight seconds. And yet I lose my own stuff all the time. I say I have like better visibility into where he puts his stuff than I put my own. I love the horizon that instead of getting organized and getting my life together, I can just get this product. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Listeners to our podcast will get 40% off their first tracker device. Go to thetracker.com right now and enter promo code CULTURE. Again, that's T-H-E-T-R-A-C-K-E-R.com, promo code CULTURE. All right. Why don't we start with you, Dana, as per usual. What do you have? This week, I have two things that spring directly from the topics we discussed. In relation to names, I think I've already endorsed this site or in some way ranted about it, and I'm sure you used it in your research, but the Baby Name Voyager site Mm. is the greatest piece of graphic visualization about the history of names that you could possibly find. It's really, really great to use if you're trying to choose a name or help a friend choose a name for a baby, but it's also just really fun to research the history of your own name. And I guarantee that once you start using this tool, the Name Voyager will start typing in every name you can possibly think of to see how it's risen and fallen over the last hundred years. And that's stuff there is, is hard data, I should say, as opposed to many baby naming sites that, you know, take polls of their users or something like that. It's really going into yeah, it's based on data. it's based on the Social Security Administration right. statistics. Another fun right. page to visit, actually. Right. You can visit the, um, uh, the Social Security name database from whence that information is called. It has some very interesting search features, too. So we'll put links to those on the show page. And then the other inspired by the show endorsement I have is that, Julia, if you're a Mary Elizabeth Winstead fan and you feel like, but she never stars in anything, I want to see her in a really good movie, you should see Smash. Have you seen Smashed? No. It's this small movie. It was the first movie, um, the first film directed by James Ponsolt, who made The Spectacular Now and uh-huh. who made last year that David Foster Wallace movie. And it's great. It's a love story between her character and Aaron Paul. So already the casting is great. And they play, not to give too much away, but they play a pair of drunks. They pay, play a married couple who are both alcoholics. One decides to go on the wagon. The other has a hard time following and it's like a heart-wrenching, beautifully acted drama. And Mary Elizabeth Winstead steals, I mean, even from Aaron Paul, steals the movie. Lovely. All right. Um, Julia, what do you have? Okay. Well, first of all, we have follow-up from our opening banter. Uh, I believe Lindsay has found a robot on the internet to tell us how to pronounce the word we were debating the pronunciation of. Lindsay, can you share what the man on the internet says? Imprimatur. I mean, that's just, neither of us thought that. <laughs> I, I want, like, a revote. Do we have any other men on the internet? Imprimator. Okay, so now we have dueling robots, so there is no solace on the internet, we, which we probably knew already. Uh, I'm going to continue to pronounce it as I desire, and so, Steve, should you. Uh, okay, my endorsement this week is actually conjured by watching that amazing Jody the Country Girl doll video, which is not um, an ad that I saw in my childhood, but it reminded me of an ad that I recall because it's graven into the grooves of my mind from childhood which I realized I haven't seen since 1984 or some such um, but which I thought perhaps exists on the internet so I have googled it let me play it for you mine, mine, mine. oh howdy partner time for timer do you ever get that hungry feeling after school boy I do I'm so hungry I could eat a wagon wheel when I'm slow on the draw and I need something to chaw, I hanker for a hunk of cheese. When my ten gallon hats are feeling five gallons flat, I got something planned, which is little cheese sandwiches. Come on! Here's a great little snack to tide you over till dinner. If you want something delicious and nutritious, cheese is a super snack. Look, a wagon wheel. 
When my get up and go has got up and went, I hanker for a hunk of cheese. When I'm dancing, I hold down and my boots kind of slow down or any time I'm weak in the knees. I hanker for a hunk of, a slab or slice a chunk of, a snacker is a winner and yet won't spoil my dinner. I hanker for a hunk of cheese. <laughs> that tune, those words will like come to my mind every four to eight months for all <laughs> of my 37 years of existence. And I've never been reunited with the original. It's not, it doesn't actually look exactly as I remember it looking. I think probably on some deep level, I still think of cheese as a healthy snack. And when I eat cheese, I feel virtuous. And it's probably because of that little cartoon cheese cowboy. <laughs> so I don't know that I'm endorsing that ad specifically, although maybe I am. There's actually some kind of nice like what do you call it? The way the words break over the line, the little cheese scansion. The, the, yeah, the little cheese sandwiches rhyme is actually kind of sophisticated. But in any event, whether or not I endorse that particular perniciously persistent jingle, the notion that you can use YouTube to reconnect yourself with your childhood phantoms is uh, something we should all take more advantage of. Right, <laughs> <laughs> Jody. What uh, what do you have? Okay, I'm going to do two quick ones. All right. Um, so both uh, Anglophile. All right, so in honor of George Martin's passing, um, I'm going to do a, a quick endorsement of one of my favorite George Martin moments on the Beatles records, which is in, which is on the, the great album Revolver. The song is John Lennon's I'm Only Sleeping. And uh, here's an example of, of Martin's incredible genius as a producer. And the song, of course, evokes this kind of psychedelic sort of dream state or the state between sleeping and wakefulness. Um, so for the guitar solo, which I think is just like four bars long, he transcribed the solo backwards and had George Harrison play the notes backwards and then ran the tape in reverse such that the actual melody that they wanted played on the guitar would be there, but with these kind of sucking this kind of dreamy, smeary sound that you get when tape when the tape is run backwards. So it's an incredibly beautiful, lyrical, eerie musical passage, which perfectly evokes the theme of the song. So there's that. And the other one, real quick, is um, I read a lot about Downton Abbey this week, which is a show I stopped watching after I think like, the first or second season. Never really, I mean, I liked it like everyone else, but I wasn't I wasn't crazy about it. But one of the things I, that I didn't like about it was how you know it's sort of the the decline and fall of the English aristocracy was viewed as this melodrama come tragedy, right? Well, the person you need to go to for the antidote to that and that attitude and to that is, is of course, my godhead P.G. Woodhouse. And uh, so what I want to endorse is a BBC show, which is, I think, they're currently filming the third season. And it's it's the show Blandings, which is, of course, the, a series based on Woodhouse's Blandings Castle novels. So I... I recommend to everyone and you can you can find it online forgive my uncultured american question but the blandings novels are these birdie and jeeves or is it a different universe it's well it's it's a parallel universe the the, uh, birdie and jeeves never feature in the blandings novel but some of the characters who feature in the in the birdie and jeeves novels show up at blandings castle i see so it's kind of like homicide and the law and order shows um, it's exactly not but it's not a crossover (laughs) episode (laughs) right all right, great, good. Phew, now now it's been translated into <laughs> into my idiom. Brilliant. I, Jody, I couldn't agree more with your choice of, of uh, George Martin cuts from the Beatles catalog. A quick George Martin vignette as part of my endorsement is uh, 
maybe my favorite story because it points up how something that comes to seem completely inevitable, you can't imagine the world without the Beatles, at one time was entirely contingent and might not have happened. The Beatles auditioned for record company after record company, label after label, and they were turned down. And Martin and EMI was really the kind of last stop for them, a completely unlikely place for a rock and roll group to end up, a totally unlikely person to produce a, um, a rock and roll band. He wasn't very impressed with them. He wasn't uh, very impressed with their either their musicianship or their, especially their songwriting. They made a cut and they're standing, uh, listening to it. And Martin says, is there anything you don't like? Referring, of course, to the song. Without missing a beat, George Harrison says, well, to begin with, there's your tie. It was the joke about the necktie that got the Beatles signed. He, they started shitting around with each other, joking around. And Martin, who had a deep background in British comedy records, novelty records with Spike Jones and Peter Sellers, immediately saw that they were geniuses because of their sense of humor and their charisma more than for the music. And he decides to sign them. I mean, it's just an, it's just an incredible moment where all of pop culture history hangs on a thread over a precipice and it could go one way or the other and it just happens to go the other way anyway so i'm not sure where the endorsement is in that but i want to endorse more traditionally something that there are certain antipodes in in culture and at the very farthest end of things that jody rosen respects or cares about is a tiny little now defunct british record label called sarah records it's, it's a bunch of whiny self-involved privileged sounding northern england brits sitting around making music that sounds like the wimpier cousin to bell and sebastian <laughs> and i i love it and the music is amazing who and, name a band that's on this uh, this label uh the field mice <laughs> <laughs> but but and, <laughs> i'm endor- i'm endorsing one of the more obscure bands on the label <laughs> called... Not at the level of Field Mice yeah, or yeah, anything. Field. Um, called St. Christopher. And they made... their. I love that their wiki page reads, are mainly known among indie pop fans for their four singles and 10-inch mini LP on Sarah Records, although they actually have a much longer history, both before and after their time on Sarah, producing a prolific quantity of recordings on a variety of labels. Anyway, um, but they're most known for those four singles and 10-inch mini LP, which actually are fucking amazing. Tell me I'm wrong. Listen to them. They were just a, one of the great lost-to-the-sands-of-time um, indie, indie pop, indie rock bands of all time. St. Christopher, check them out. Jody, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. My pleasure. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our facebook page facebook.com slash culturefest our producer is ann hepperman our intern is Lindsay albracht the executive producer of slate podcasts is steve lichtai and andy bowers is the chief content officer the cco the commanding cco of the panoply network the culture gab fest is part of the panoply network check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply our twitter feed is at slate cult fest Julia Turner and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll, we'll see you soon. Hey, Stephen, looks can be deceiving, but I know I saw a lot in you. Send the poets. Vulnerable people, not invulnerable drones. 
That was poet Saul Williams with his radical suggestion for dealing with ISIS. I'm Jason Gotts, host of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Each week, we surprise smart people with topics they're not prepared to discuss. Salman Rushdie on astrophysics, Jesse Ventura on alien life forms. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Think again. It's deep fun.